Hello and welcome to How to Fix, a podcast all about the behind the scenes innovations that are solving society's big questions. I'm your host, Rich Williams, and across this series, we'll be talking to the cutting edge researchers who are taking ideas from the lab to the street to make this world a better place. Today, we're tackling an issue that has gripped every household in the country over the past year, food poverty. No matter what your income is, you will have noticed the incredible increase in food costs. And even when the price of certain food items has stayed the same, often the amount of food in weight has gone down. Some households will have been able to gobble up, albeit reluctantly, the extra money it's costing to feed individuals and families. For others, this change in cost has plunged them into crisis. When the income used to just be enough to put food on the table, but that same food is costing much more, households are being faced with an untenable situation. The Trussell Trust, an organisation working to stop hunger and food poverty in the UK, sent out almost 3 million emergency food parcels from March last year to April this year. There are, of course, a myriad of reasons for the current situation, some involving global and national politics, such as the war in Ukraine, Brexit and the pandemic. And are we going to solve any of those on this podcast? Clearly not. However, we do have three fantastic guests with three totally different perspectives to share with you. And they're on the way to shine a positive light on the amazing work that is being done to help fix food poverty. Life now is quite difficult. I'm on a university credit, which is not quite sufficient for my own living. I found that the food bank was my last option to make my end need. One in five residents in the city say that they won't have enough money after housing costs to meet their basic living costs, and that includes buying food. The cost of the system is being put on to the people consuming the food. I think it would be lovely if companies thought about making less profit, but as we live in a capitalist society, I doubt that's going to happen. Could the government subsidise? Maybe not. Could people be so greedy? I haven't got an answer. Well, it used to last maybe a week, now it lasts like a day, <laughs> basically. So yeah, it's been like quite hard. I need to feed my kid, I need to feed myself, because I was going through a difficult time without even having a free meal per day and maybe once or two meals per day, which is not enough. So I thought to myself, why not join Food Bank, which is quite good things because, yeah, you can't really die in silence. You need more help somewhere. Today, we welcome to our roundtable discussion from the University of Leeds, Professor at the School of Food Science and Nutrition, Michelle Morris. Hi, nice to be here. Professor at the School of Geography, Sara Gonzalez. Hi, thanks for the invite. And Associate Professor in Sustainable Food Networks, Effie Papagaropoulou. Hello, nice to be here. So we're going to cover a lot on this because there's some amazing work that's being done. We're going to cover supermarkets, the importance of food, both nutritionally and culturally. We'll talk about food banks and food markets and, and their role and, and lots of stuff. But I guess, Michelle, it's worth starting with you and the research you've done, because a key issue in food poverty is accessing food. So it's probably worth, before you say about the work that you've been doing, what we mean by access, because some people might just think, well, let's go into the supermarket and getting some food. It's not quite as simple as that, is it? 
No. So access means different things to different people. So it is the physical access. Is there a supermarket close by? But also, can you get to that supermarket? Do you have a car? Is there a bus route? Also, there might be a supermarket there that you can get to easily, but if you can't afford the food that they're selling, then you can't access it that way either. So it's access in its broadest sense of whether, you know, it's convenient, physically possible and affordable for people to buy the food. Okay. The tool that you've created in your research, and that was done with Consumer Champions, which talk a little bit about that, because that's all about highlighting different communities in the UK and about the access that they have. Because a lot of people listening, and certainly when I first approached this topic, I was like, well, is there a one-size-fits-all solution? But clearly with this, that there isn't. And depending on where you are and who you are, it's going to have a big impact on your accessibility to food. So talk us through the work that you've done. Yes, so we worked with Witch last year in recognising this huge problem with the cost of living crisis and the kind of competing pressures that everybody's having with affording to be able to buy food. And we have this kind of food and fuel kind of way off with a lot of families. We wanted to be able to use our expertise from the Consumer Data Research Centre at the University of Leeds, which is processing high volumes of information or data and making that accessible to a whole range of different stakeholders and use that to be able to better understand what is driving food insecurity in certain areas. So we've used a range of different data sets in our index that we created with which, but in the basic sense, it's a whole set of things that act as barriers and then a set of things that act as enablers to being able to get to food. So things that make it easy, things that make it hard. And we've processed all of that and put it into an interactive map so that public, policymakers, supermarkets can use the map, look at particular areas, see what's driving the problem, whether that's difficulty in getting to the supermarket through access, whether that's because people are struggling financially so much that the access is there, but they can't actually pay for it, or whether it's something like we need better online delivery services. So by using the tool and the different sort of options that you can toggle on and off, it makes all that data and information available to all kinds of different people without having to have those technical skills. The map itself just to describe it, I guess, for anyone who won't have seen it, it's sort of blue dots all over the place, really. And one thing that's very noticeable on that is that there are real clusters of areas across the UK where this is a bigger issue for more people. Certainly, if you're faced with that issue, it's just as big an issue wherever you are, but in terms of the geographical spacing of that. So, Where are those areas? Because when you look at it, it's quite stark, really. It really is. So we've actually used areas as like neighbourhood areas. So those are really small kind of clusters of about a thousand people. But in a lot of our communications, like with MPs and policymakers, we talk about that at a constituency level. So from a constituency, so we're here in Leeds, but in the top 10% of most challenged communities with food, there's three in Bradford. There's a lot in the northeast and the northwest as well. But they are all over the country and it's for different reasons. Um, You talked about the blue dots. The blue dots are those that are struggling the most and there's different colours. So you can toggle on right through to, um, I don't know if it's pink or yellow, the people who are struggling the least. But I think what's really interesting about the tool is you can then drop on the different domains. So you can look at whether that's been driven by socioeconomic status, whether it's been driven by the need of family food support. There's a different driver if you've got lots of young children and you can't afford to buy the food and you're getting free school meal vouchers or Healthy Start top-up, or you're really reliant on food banks. So that might be 
one driver for a particular area where there's a, you know, a cluster of people struggling. But equally in a rural area, it might be just driven by the fact that you don't have a car, there's no shops anywhere near and you physically can't get to supermarkets because there's no online deliveries. So we're seeing clusters of different kinds in different places and the tool makes it really easy for everyone to see what is that's driving it in a particular area. And then it's the case, of course, about looking at those areas and trying to improve it, right? Absolutely. And that's why we've kind of used these different layers for people to be able to look at it in their areas. So if you're only interested in, you know, Bradford South, for example, you can go in there and just zoom in on that area and see, you know, right down to the different neighbourhoods. But Or if you're interested in it, looking at the constituencies across the whole of England, you might go and use some of the witch reports that they've published that are talking about the number of areas within your constituency. Yeah, and I guess a question for all of you, because... Research, as it always does, happens over a period of time, right? It doesn't, oh, we'll do this research and then tomorrow we're going to release it. These are lots of time investment going into it, a lot of work that goes into it. And obviously the situation is constantly changing as well. We've certainly seen over the last 12 months with a cost of living crisis. And it was interesting you mentioned about energy and food poverty. It feels like energy almost gets spoken about a bit more than food poverty sometimes. I don't know how you feel about that as people researching this. But that's a constantly changing and evolving situation. And presumably, if you're in a community that's been struggling, it's only going to have got worse over the last year. I think so. We're um, updating the index in autumn again this year. So we're in the uh, midst of lots of busyness within the team at the moment, because to do exactly like you said, things have changed. You know, there are more, there's better information, more up-to-date information available so that we can update that. And we've had a lot of feedback from people over the course of the year as well about ways that we could improve that, where some components are actually more important, perhaps than we thought originally. So we'll be kind of changing some of the weightings in there as well to make it more useful to more people. What are the practical things you want to see happen as a result of this research? There's multiple things. So when working with Witch, they've created a 10-point plan for supermarkets. So things that supermarkets can do really easily, like making sure that budget lines are available in their convenience stores and in the areas that are most in need, because we know that doesn't always happen, making unit pricing really clear so that everybody can see you know, how much it costs per weight as well, because we often see that prices stay the same, but pack sizes go down. Thinking about how we do promotions, like often you see multi-buy promotions, where actually that requires a bigger outlay to start with. So let's just think about having price promotions. So there's a whole range of things that supermarkets could do, and that's one of the reasons we want to do this. But also there's a whole load of things that policymakers can do and people in the local areas where they can go in and and see what's going on. Like we've been working with charities as well so they can look at how they can provision their services better to different areas where perhaps they don't have a big team with technical skills. They've got a team of people who are really good at getting things on the ground and this really helps them to target their resources better. Yeah, I mean, that's really useful for setting the scene with this topic as to the areas that we're looking at and where this is happening and, and why this is happening. I guess, and in, in Effie and Sarah saw you nodding along to a lot of that as well, because I know all your research kind of overlaps. It's not just about affordability as well and in terms of nutrition. So tell us, what are the effects that food poverty is having on people? Absolutely. First of all, to follow on from what Michelle was saying, I think we've seen maybe in the northeast especially particularly when we're talking about clusters, who's affected most about that. We're seeing that these areas are primarily, you know, worst affected. And the situation, as you said, is getting worse. So more people are accessing food banks, more people are in need of support. But also 
food insecurity is not felt the same way across different households. So there is a, an inequality within that as well. So we have households that have disabilities or households that are from ethnic groups or have children. They're worse affected than other households. So there is a lot of different levels of granularity that you look. Michelle's tool looks at all of those things. So going back to the impact, yes, it's not just about nutrition. It's not just about health, which is obviously a huge problem. But when somebody can't access enough affordable, culturally appropriate, nutritious food, or they don't know where the next meal is coming from, they're under a lot of stress. When they don't know when, you know, if they can feed the children, that adds a lot of pressure on them. And taking that through time, you can see how that would build up. And there's research done that shows that there's a very direct link between the people affected by food insecurity or food poverty, as we're talking about it here, and mental health. And those suffering from food insecurity have increased levels of anxiety and depression. There's a huge impact on the mental health. A lot of the time we focus on the physical health, which is also very, very important. So people, when they hear food poverty, they think hunger, they think obesity, they think diabetes, things like that. But also the mental health is often sort of hidden because there's a lot of isolation. There's a lot of stigma associated with that, not being able to afford to feed your children. It's a huge stigma. And we've seen a lot more households that previously didn't have to access support and they could, the working families, for example, and they have to access support now. And there's a huge shame surrounding that. So going back to your question that you asked me about the, the impact. So there is a huge impact on mental health and unfortunately is getting worse. But there is a few glimmers of hope, if you would like to. No, I mean, I I mean that, that is yes. precisely what we're, we're, we're trying to do here, which exactly. is to, to hear about the things. That, but it's impossible to do it without giving the context, isn't it, as well? And, you know, that's out of the three million emergency food parcels at the Trussell Trust. You know, it's really shocking numbers to hear. But yeah. I know that there are things that are being done which you, which you want to get onto, Effie. Absolutely, because I don't want to, you know, paint a really stark picture, which is the situation, but there's a lot of work being done, as well as the research that we're talking about today. We've seen an increase on our food hubs. So these are organisations that could include food banks, food pantries, community centres. So sort of grounds up, you know, bottoms up sort of type of initiatives, third sector community driven initiatives that are trying to support people affected by food insecurity. And they do that first by you know, addressing the immediate need, which is the food itself. But what we've seen in our research is that the food hubs say when they first receive people, they realise that it's not just food that they're after. They're after connection with other people. They're after, you know, ways to come out of that isolation and the stigma. They're after deeper sort of motivations rather than just the, the food. And that's when the food hub started providing a more holistic offering, if you like, beyond just the food parcels or the meals. And what they do is they offer opportunities for connection with the communities, bringing those communities together. They offer classes, they offer skills training, how to budget, how to cook, how to do with very little, how to grow your own food, things like that. And bringing together also community groups like specifically for women or people affected by violence or things like that. But also as the last thing that they do is they signpost 
to other services, which is really, really crucial. So they would be giving advice up to the point where they have capacity to do that and knowledge. And then they would say, well, there's another service to help you with your housing issues, with your employment issues, things like that. More working deeper in the underlying causes of why that person has found themselves in that situation. So there is a lot of positive work being done and that's great. But on the other hand, that doesn't address food insecurity, just to clarify that and make that absolutely clear. But I'll tell you what's amazing about the answer you've just given there, which is that we're addressing all different topics and subjects and how to fix things at the moment. And actually hearing you say that using the mechanism of people who've come because they have food insecurity, they're actually accessing help in a lot of other areas that we're also touching on on different podcasts in this series. It's good to hear. There's a couple of things you said that I just wanted to pick up on. You mentioned the phrase culturally appropriate. Is that a problem that we're, again, I used the phrase earlier, sort of one-size-fits-all approach, that we need to be aware of the cultures people are coming from and therefore help them make sure that they've got food that's culturally appropriate? Absolutely, because as you said, food is not just nutrition. It's a huge part of our culture and is a big enough step for somebody that hasn't accessed, you know, food support to go to a food bank and try and, and ask for a parcel. And there is the stigma and the shame and all that stuff that we talked about. But then to be given something that is not really suitable for them, it's almost like another hit. So we're seeing that there is a need for more culturally appropriate food. And we're seeing examples of food hubs trying to respond to that. So we have an example here in Leeds. It's a food hub called Hamara. And what they've done is they did an actual research to understand who are the groups, the main groups of people, culturally speaking, that they are responding to. And then they tried to understand what are the key staples there. So for a, a white middle class family, that would be, let's say, rice and pasta. But for another family from a different background, will be very different. So they connected with local greengrocers, for example. And when they were preparing food parcels, they would put in the appropriate staples for these families that what they need. And a lot of the time, these are the items that are more expensive, hence less affordable, hence more likely that a family would not access those. Sarah, let's just bring you in here because mm-hmm. you've been you've been patiently listening to, to yeah. everything that's been said so far. We talked about supermarkets and Michelle talking about using that tool to try and say, well, these are the areas where we need help. We need to be looking at the lines that we're doing, the the pricing, the the offers, all, all those kind of things. Supermarkets aren't the only places people buy groceries. You're looking into more kind of traditional markets mm-hmm. and uh, markets for people is yeah. the, the work you've been doing. So could you give us a bit of background on that and the things that you've yeah. been doing also? Yeah, so my research has been looking at what we call traditional retail markets, which are places where people go and and do their shopping. They tend to be owned and managed by local authorities. There's around more than 1,000 of them up and down the UK. They, of course, have been around for, you know, hundreds of years. In the UK, they've suffered a process of disinvestment and, you know, they've been a little bit marginalised. So many people don't actually go there. They don't even know there's one around them. But there are a lot and, and they're a reality of many, many people. So we surveyed people in three markets in the UK. We, we spoke to 1,500 market users and we also spoke to experts like people who run markets. I mean, we found some amazing things. A lot of people still rely on, on markets. Some people go several times a week and they've been going for 20 years, some of them. So some older people, for them, is like another home almost because they've been going for 20 years, twice a week. You can imagine for them, that's a really important place in their life. These traditional markets, they tend to particularly serve those people that we've actually been spoken about, those that are, tend to be more food insecure because they tend to serve people from low income, 
people who live in neighborhoods which are more marginalized, elderly people and people from ethnic minorities. So in a way, what's interesting is that they're already accessing food in there. And it's perhaps a shame that other people with similar kind of food security issues are not coming to these markets as much because the food tends to be a lot more affordable, which is uh, something that perhaps is not well known to, to most people who don't visit them. I mean, it's interesting because they are tend to be run by local authorities. So they're not really run in a way just for profit, like supermarkets would normally do. So they're also normally, the stalls there are managed by single traders. They tend to be family-owned businesses. So then they also benefit the sort of local economy because if you, the money you spend there stays in that sort of local economy. It doesn't go up to international shareholders that like supermarkets. So there's lots of benefits. And like, I think it's interesting to see them more as a public space. People go there and sometimes spend, you know, two or three hours and they chat to the same traders. They might uh, share ideas about what they're buying, if it's food, perhaps, recipes, or, you know, the traders might point out to what's cheaper. Perhaps something is going off or, or before it gets wasted, it gets given a cheaper for a cheaper price. So all these things that perhaps supermarkets are, are kind of struggling to do are happening naturally in markets already. Food is being reduced. Sometimes it's, it's being given away for free to people who need it. So there's all these kind of strategies that are just naturally happening there. Yeah, it's interesting you say about food being reduced and, and trying to eradicate wastage as well, which I think we're all a little bit guilty of sometimes. But I don't think there's anyone or a very small percentage of people, I think there's some research on this as well, who are not giving any thought to what they're spending on food at the moment mm. because of the, the change that there's there's been. And do you think markets like these are really more important than they've ever been in some mm. respects, rather than maybe going back a long, long time ago like in the current climate? they are an opportunity for people to be able to spend their money more wisely. Definitely. I think so. However, probably that opportunity is not being seen properly by local authorities. Local authorities, we need to remember, they've been through, I mean, huge public budget cuts, austerity, and markets, it's just one thing else they have to try to run. So for them, it's kind of a bit difficult, and they try to use markets as a place to make more income. Whereas I think there's an opportunity to think of them as more in terms of a social policy, you know. We've mentioned the Northeast region a few times. So one of our case studies was Granger Market in the centre of Newcastle. So when we surveyed about 500 people there in that shop in Granger Market, we found that people who shop there tend to come from neighbourhoods that have got characteristics of food desert, which is a little bit what Michelle was talking about before, when people are, find difficult to find to access affordable food in their neighbourhoods, those people are travelling all the way to the city centre of Newcastle to find food. And not only they find food, they find a nice chat, they find a warm environment, mm. and they feel comfortable if they've got disabled children or relatives or people with mental health issues, they're welcome there, they feel safe. So they're hitting lots of different kind of policy areas, markets. And I don't think yet local authorities are quite realising that there's such potential in them. Yeah, I, I can see you nod, nodding along there, Effie, because there's so much overlap, isn't there, between the, the work that you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. I think that hidden sort of value of markets, of food hubs, as community hubs in a way that bring people together, it's missed. And it's a shame, as Sarah is saying, but they, they add more than just money. You know, markets and hubs are doing, food hubs are doing more than just redistributing food surplus. They do a lot more. And I think in, in both our research, I think, Sarah, it's fair to say is that 
we making calls for policymakers to support these initiatives and mm. not just see them as is it making money is it not that's it we know it's hard times so it's not mm. you know we, we understand it's more complicated than that but if we consider even financially speaking economically speaking if we consider the cost of a very mm. unhealthy population of a population that suffers from isolation from mental health problems all that are costs that just felt somewhere else in the system mm. or the society if you like so they can do a lot these mm. assets if we call them as community assets which i think you would agree yeah, with yeah yeah definitely um, i think they have huge value and they can actually contribute not just to the local economy as you said but broadly speaking to the economy because they can you know avoid they can be very preventative measures against mm. you know the, the eels that we're seeing around the society at the moment so they do so much more and that's our call mm. is to, to be valued a little bit more for what they do yeah it's interesting because hearing you talk about the all the other issues that are associated with it on the one hand is concerning to hear all those things but then to also hear that there are places like you're saying that can actually address those as well that mm. it's not just a case of well food poverty is an issue of how much does everything cost and what can you and what can you not afford but there is much more underneath there, just under the surface, that can be done, really. Yeah, and like I said, these are already owned and managed by local authorities, so they're just there. And the people who tend to be there are those exactly with food insecurity issues. So if we could just turn these places into, like Effie's saying, hubs, where perhaps other things can happen. And in fact, we did actually ask lots of local authorities, and lots of them are doing really, really fantastic things. So they are actually hosting other mini services or they kind of got maybe pop-up stalls in markets where they're advertising, I don't know, like diabetes issues or women's mental health or or dementia. So they're using markets in different ways to also maybe advertise and promote other services and pinpoint because you know that hundreds of thousands of people go through there. So, you know, we can, we can access people where they are. In terms of markets, I mean, the, the traditional market, I mean, Quite a few of those have been sort of almost replaced, haven't they, by a market where it's going to be a very expensive slice of cheese or or whatever it might be, which I guess hasn't helped either. And perhaps public's perception as to what you Mm. are or aren't going to get at a market is not helped by that. Mm. Yeah. My research has really been looking into that, into the sort of gentrification of markets, how some markets are becoming more upmarket, if you want. And that's, I think, I I tend to think of that as part of, again, the same issue of austerity. So local authorities are needing to find income somewhere and they're thinking of markets as a place to make more money in a way. So maybe they can then use that money for other services. So they are in many markets are being redeveloped to serve this more sort of high income kind of populations that use the market more as a leisure space. And they come for like foodie nights or, I don't know, gin and tonic nights or something like that. You know, that is shifting away our, our understanding of markets to us not about sort of what we need and the things that we need, not just food, but social interaction and people who really need these issues. It's shifting them more as, as a sort of leisure space for those that can afford it. And that, yeah, that is an issue and that is a shame in a way that they are being pushed in that direction. Michelle, just to bring you back in here, because you were talking about the areas in the country and what supermarkets can do in particular as opposed to the traditional markets. But one thing on both of those, and you mentioned this as well, Sarah, to, to do with budgeting. A lot of the time, budgeting gets sort of waved as a as a tool to say, well, you haven't budgeted properly. And, and obviously, we know food's going up. But what can be done to, to help people with that particular issue? I'll throw it a difficult one because it's different for everybody, isn't it? I think, you know, you have... Um if you've got a certain amount of budget, if you're on a lower income, you know, your food purchases are a much bigger proportion of your budget. So it is different for everyone. And then you people value food differently. You know, for some people, it will be easy to go to a local market because there's one close by. 
it's open during the hours when they're not working. There's all kinds of reasons that play into that. So I think, you know, we need to consider multiple solutions that would fit different sorts of people. But help with budgeting. I mean, having it clearer how much something's actually costing before you get it to the till is obviously really useful. And having it sort of cheaper deliveries and and making sure that you can get food from the cheapest place within the timeframes that you were able to get to it. But yeah, it's a really personal thing. And I don't know that it's really an answer to say, oh, you should be budgeting better because, you know, when you listen to the lived experience of people with food insecurity, they know how to budget. They know how much everything is. They probably know far better. They'll know far better than I do how much it is. People shop around. They go to all these different places just to get things cheaper for their families so what the approach we're trying to take is thinking about all the different ways we can make it easier for people to do that because actually people already know how to budget in most cases i think I feel like we've only just scratched the surface, which we sort of said at the beginning, which is that, you know, it's impossible to delve fully into it. But it is really amazing to hear all the stuff that's being done and the research and the the practical research. We started off by asking the question, how do we fix food poverty? And there's brilliant work going on. I guess I would just ask you each if there was one thing that you could change, you wake up tomorrow morning and, and actually now this is happening, what that thing might be, that would be helpful to hear really i'm going to come to you michelle first we came to you you originally what what is the one thing from the research that you've seen that you'd really like to see change affected straight away this is quite a high level one i really think that policymakers need to see food poverty and poverty as not separate things like i hear people say oh it's poverty it's not a problem with food but food is so integral to health sustainability of the planet culture so many different things that our government departments need to come together around food and food poverty to be able to tackle that together rather than keeping it in silos. Effie, what would it be for you? I completely agree. I think poverty is one of the main reasons that people are food insecurity. There's a whole food system that, Michelle, in, in your model, you're working through all these factors. But I would say, yeah, not, not separating the, those two and dealing with the root causes or one of the root causes of food poverty, which is you know, poverty itself. And we can do that with decent wages and benefits in light with the cost of living. You know, it's, it's, it's as simple as that. And something back to what you said about cheap food. I don't think any of us advocates here for cheap food. I think we're advocating for affordable food. And I think it's a really important distinction to make between, you know, those two. So yeah, affordable food by uh, decent wages and, you know, in line with the cost of, of life. Sarah, what would yours be? I mean, in line with what Effie and Michelle are saying, but a bit more, perhaps a bit radical, difficult to think about. But if we all had universal basic income, maybe this wouldn't be such an issue. If we all had some sort of basic income that we all get every month, regardless of the job we do, we could dedicate time to the shopping in markets or supermarkets and, and you know, cook fresh and do other things. So definitely it's part of a much bigger change that we need. But I mean, in terms of Perhaps also a big idea is I think we need to take more control of our food. So not hand it out to other corporate players that for them is all about making profit and surplus. Take it more in our hands. So use local markets that are publicly owned and also try to do more of a community sort of, you know, food grassroots movement. So that would be kind of my small solution. (laughs) Change the world. Yeah, thank you. Change the world. There you go. We'll, We'll end it on that. Thank you 
all so much for spending a little bit of time on this podcast. And anyone listening to that who is worried either about their own situation or for people that they love and people that they care about and the wider community as well, I think will be really encouraged to hear the work that's going on to address this issue. So thank you very much for spending a little bit of time here on the podcast. I'm Rich Williams, and this has been How to Fix. Hopefully this podcast has shown that although society is facing some huge questions at the moment, there are incredible people constantly researching and innovating to help tackle those issues. And speaking of the big issues, we will, of course, be discussing another one in the next episode. How to Fix was presented by Rich Williams and produced by Kasia Tomashevich. The audio producer was me, Jade Bailey, and the lead producer was Anne-Marie Luff. How to Fix is a Podmasters production for the University of Leeds Communications and Engagement Team.